Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. The call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 21, verse 23. Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. This proverb is pretty self-evident. Words are dangerous, and they can get you in hot water in a hurry. Jesus tells us that it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And if you think about it, our mouths are kind of like a thermometer for our souls. You can judge a man by his words. You can tell if his heart is sick or if it is healthy. Words bring either life or death. And it's a wise man who learns this and sets up a guard over his mouth. He thinks before he speaks. James says whoever controls his tongue is a perfect man. And that is a high target. Perfection is a high target. If you think about it, just a second, think about how high it is. No off-the-cuff, smart-alecky comments. No muttering under the breath. No grumbling. No complaining. No whining. No coarse jesting. No cursing or swearing or taking God's name in vain. Never back-talking authority. Never gossiping. No yelling at each other. No lying. Always honoring your parents. Always praying. Always giving thanks. Always praising God. Always speaking truth. Always guarding your tongue. Whoever controls his tongue is a perfect man. And then remember what John says. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So if you're willing and able, please kneel as we confess. It's a glorious thing that we can come together to to worship God, and but in our culture we have this one day a year where we celebrate the office of motherhood and the the work that our, our mothers do and and our, our wives who our mothers do and and uh, ladies thank you and we'll we'll get back to that a little bit later on. So Paul, we're in Acts chapter 18, and Paul has just left Athens. 
He's on his second missionary journey. The year is about 8051. So 21 years after the death and resurrection of our Lord. Um, Paul was in Athens. He was waiting for Timothy and Silas. He left them up in Philippi and, and Berea and Thessalonica. And he left them up there and to minister when he left because the Thessalonian Jews were trying to to attack him and kill him. So he went down to Athens, and when he was there, he was provoked by the idols, and he preached the gospel. And he preached the gospel, and he ultimately preached it to the Areopagus, and that's the intelligentsia of the, of the Roman world and the universities. Um, and when they started mocking, and then he, he was silent, he laughed, and, and some believed, others mocked, and some said... Um, well, we'll hear you again on this matter. But our text today is Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 18. And in it, we're, we're going to see that Paul comes to Corinth. And he establishes relationships with Aquila and Priscilla. And he stays in Corinth for a year and a half. He ministers to the Jews until they reject the gospel. And then he brings it out. He goes out to the Gentiles. Um... Then God comforts him with a vision, and, uh, and then God proves his providence and reality in the text. So in all of this, we have much to learn about calling and ministry and, and God's provision. Because Corinth, Corinth was a, uh, a big city. In fact, we're just going to get into that in a second. So Acts 18, verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. So Corinth was the Roman capital of the province of Achaia, and Achaia was the south part of, of Greece. So I, I don't know if you're very familiar with your Greek, Greek geography, but we're going to have, have a little bit of a geog geography lesson here. So Greek is a peninsula that goes into the, the Mediterranean Sea, and on either side of it are two different seas. And... and the Athens is at the, the, the bottom of the main peninsula coming down, but there's a, a big section that, that is jutting off of Athens, and it's connected by a narrow isthmus of land. That's what, it's just a narrow strip of land. It's only four miles wide. And so uh, Athens was, was on the, the mainland peninsula, and there's a narrow strip of land that's four miles wide, and, and then right at the end of that strip of land is the city of Corinth. And then, and, and then if you keep going past Corinth, about 50 miles past Corinth, you get to the city of Sparta, which is on the Peloponnesus, which is a large, almost like an island. The only thing connecting it to the mainland is that, that narrow isthmus where Corinth is. And, and Corinth is directly between Athens in the north and, and Sparta in the south. And... Uh, Corinth's uh, location was really valuable because it, uh, it made Corinth very wealthy because it was right at the, at the center of the trade routes from the east, which would have, from the east, which would have been uh, Israel and, and Syria and all, all the way into um, Persia. So, so from there all the way to the west, which would have been Rome and Italy and Spain and, and, and farther on. And so in order to connect between the two, you would have to travel through Greece, either by land, and, but if you're going by ship, you would have to go around Greece, because Greece was a big peninsula sticking down into the Mediterranean. 
Well, because Corinth was located on a narrow strip of land, they could actually pick ships up, and smaller ships, and, and they, had, they made a road where they could bring them from one sea to the other sea. And so, so Corinth had two seaports, Centria and... Um, I was say, oh, Lycaon. And so, so you could you could pull into harbor in one of them and get on and go to the other one. And if you had a bigger ship, what they would do is they would unload the, the cargo and they bring it to other ships on the other side. But Corinth became the crossroads for 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 wealth. I mean, they just became it was a major trade route, and the Romans had made it a province, and it, and, and it was, the, I mean, Achaia was the province, Corinth was the capital of the province, and Corinth was a huge city by ancient standards. It, it, was, it was about the size of Detroit today. 700,000 people lived there. It was the largest city in Greece at the time, and it was a cultural center. Uh, Athens was where the the, the university was, and, and it was a cultural center. They had the uh, Olympian Games there, but the second greatest games that were celebrated were the Isthmian Games, and they were celebrated at Corinth. But Corinth was a wicked city. It was a port city. It was full of sailors and riotous living. Drunkenness. The ancient site of the temple of Aphrodite was at the top of the highest point in Corinth, which was, which was a rock called the Acro-Corinth. And, and on top of it, there was a, a temple to Aphrodite, who was the goddess of love, and there were a thousand prostitutes who worked from that temple. It was, uh, the city's name had, had become a verb. They had verbed the name, and the new word was synonymous with to fornicate or to corrupt. And from the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians that Paul wrote, we know that the church there had many converts with sordid pasts. In 1st Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11, we read this. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. Corinth was a wicked city. And we also know that the church in Corinth was known for its conflict and division. There, these are significant parts of the church there. When, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing, it's just like, whoa, these problems are serious, people. I mean, they've got partisanship. You know, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Christ. And so they're fighting with each other within the church. Or they've got false teachers. They've got sexual immorality, even to the point where a man is sleeping with his father's wife. They've got financial injustice, where they're bringing each other before the courts of law. They've got drunkenness and starvation at the Lord's Supper, um, uh, where the, the wealthy are, are you're just getting drunk there, and, and the poor are left hungry. And they, even to the point of denial of the resurrection, where some, some of them said, there is no resurrection. That's, they've given up the gospel when they've gone there. And none of this should surprise us, because when we see where these new converts were coming from, they were in the middle of in the middle of a bad place. This, this, Corinth was the seat of the world. If we can compare Athens to the Ivy League universities, then we can compare Corinth to something like a combination of Las Vegas and New York. It was a teeming economic metropolis with a hearty nightlife. 
So this is the place that Paul comes to. This is where Paul goes, where God sends him with the gospel. And when he gets there, we see that he finds, of all things, companionship. God sends Paul to, to a wicked city and he gives him friends. Verses 2 to 3. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. So God ordains that Paul should come to Corinth at the same time as Aquila and Priscilla. And God also ordains that they have this profession in common, this trade in common. They're, they're all tent makers. And it was, it was a Jewish tradition uh, for boys to learn some sort of trade in their upbringing. And even if their calling was to be more scholarly, where they weren't really working with their hands, like Paul was called to be an apostle, a pastor, a teacher, a preacher. He was like a rabbi. Uh, and yet, he had learned a trade in his youth to work with his hands because there's honesty that you learn in working with your hands. There's honor in working with your hands. And so it was, it was a part of the Jewish culture that fathers were expected to train their sons into some trade, to give them some ability to provide for themselves so that they'd always have a fallback to provide for themselves and so that they wouldn't be ashamed in poverty. And, but this also brings us to an important aspect of Paul's ministry. It's very clear here, and it's very clear in several places in the New Testament that Paul was not a financial burden on those he was sent to proclaim the gospel to. We know from his letters that Paul was very careful to provide his own way and when he was, when he was out on the mission field. He was very careful to work with his hands and not be a burden on the people to whom he was bringing the gospel, not because he didn't deserve to be fed for the work he was doing. In fact, that's his argument. He says, in, in 1 Corinthians, he says, you know, when I was there, I worked with my hands, not because I didn't have a right to be fed by the work I was doing. I was giving you life. I was giving you food. Spiritual food, and is, is it a small thing to ask? It is a small thing to ask for your financial blessing. But he did it in order to enable him to preserve his boasting. He, he, he says that, that verbiage. He says, I'm doing this so that my boasting is not in vain. He doesn't want any of his enemies to have any handles by which they could accuse him of of, and, and thwart his ministry, accuse him of being greedy. He didn't want money to get in the way of the gospel. So he worked with his hands, and he never took money from the people he was ministering to. Here in Corinth, it also gives him an opportunity to develop a strong and a faithful relationship with Aquila and Priscilla. God uses this time, and he ordains that Paul is now given an opportunity to have a close relationship with Aquila and Priscilla. What we know is that Aquila was a Jew born in Pontus, which is in Asia Minor, uh, the regions of Galatia, where we, he's already been through there. Um, and they, they had been in Rome, but Claudius had kicked the Jews out, and so they had left Rome, and here they are in Corinth, and they're tent makers. 
the text doesn't indicate that they were believers when Paul met them. It doesn't say that you know he, he ran into two converts or two Christians. It says he ran into a Jew and his wife from Rome. But they worked together and they worked close together. And it becomes very clear that they, they believed the gospel that Paul brought to them. They became powerful witnesses for the gospel. In fact, uh, in the next couple weeks, we're going to get into that, how they, they become uh, capable of correcting other Christians, other teachers, because they, they've got this long... Think about this. They're working in a shop, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, rubbing shoulders, and, and, and they've got this time as they're working with their hands to talk about, well, what do you think Paul's going to talk about? He's kind of a, you know, a one-track record. <laughs> It's just like over and over and over. He's going to tell you the gospel. He's going to tell you how the scriptures demand that Jesus was the Messiah. They, that the Messiah had to be crucified. And, and Paul, Aquila and Priscilla believed. For now we see that Paul used his trade as a means of supporting himself and his way to establish relationships. But his trade doesn't stop him from carrying out his other calling. That of being an apostle sent to the Gentiles. It doesn't stop him from being a Christian, a witness for Jesus Christ. And now we see his witness in verses 4 and 5. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. So Paul starts out, he's got, he's got a day job. He's, he's making tents through the week. But on the Sabbath, he's going to the synagogue and he's, he's reasoning with the Jews, trying to proclaim Jesus Christ to them. But his ministry changed when Silas and Timothy showed up in town. Remember, he'd been waiting for them in Athens and he was done there. So he went to Corinth and, and, and now they, they've come. And, and, and that must have been a great relief to him. In fact, we know it was a great relief to him because of the books of First and Second Thessalonians, um, which, which when Paul, when, when Timothy and Silas came, they reported to him what was going on in Macedonia, and he wrote those books while he was ministering in Corinth. And so the First and Second Thessalonians. But we also have, um, we know that his his ministry changed because. Timothy and Silas brought with them gifts from the church in Philippi. They brought with them monetary support for Paul's ministry. And we have this evidence from Paul's own pen. In, in the book that he wrote to the Philippians, he says, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. So we know in the book of Philippians that Paul says, you shared with me at the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia. That's where he is now, here in Acts. And in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul's speaking to the Corinthians about when he was there. He says, when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia, Timothy and Silas, supplied. And in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. So Paul receives a gift from the church in Philippi that enables him to go into full-time ministry. He's, he's, he's set free to really get into 
witnessing Jesus Christ in Corinth, and it brings with it, that witness brings with it exactly what we should expect, and it's inevitable, and it's conflict. And we should expect it by now. Verse 6. But when they opposed him and blasphemed the Jews, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. The Jews rejected Jesus Christ, and Paul cursed them. Your blood be upon your own heads. Now, there's, there's two things that we need to make notice of here. First is that Paul had a responsibility to proclaim Jesus Christ to these people. He would not have been clean of their blood had he not proclaimed the warning of Jesus coming in judgment against their sin. Had he not witnessed to them, he would have borne guilt for their death. But that's not the scenario. He has witnessed to them. Therefore, he is clean. So the first thing is, is we have a responsibility for our neighbor to proclaim truth to them so that they may not say, I didn't know. And they may not accuse us of not telling them. Because we are commanded to tell them. God expects us to reveal His will in our world. And the blood being on your own heads is a curse. Paul says, you have opposed and rejected the gospel and blasphemed God. And he won't stand for it. And he says, I'm done. I'm done. Your blood on your own heads. There comes a time when you just walk away and say, you know the truth. Now it's up to you. I'm clean of that. I'm not guilty for your blood. And Paul's, this is only possible because Paul's message is a clear, it's a dramatic, it's an emphatic, and it's an impending warning of doom on those who reject Jesus Christ. He proclaims that if this is life and anything else is death. And then Paul says, I'm going to the Gentiles. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. But that doesn't mean that he stops witnessing to the Jews. He just changes his focus. He's witnessing to the Gentiles. He's speaking to the Gentiles. But it's, he is still witnessing to the Jews because he does it on their front doorstep. He doesn't go very far. Verse 7. And he departed from there, from the synagogue, and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Paul says, this is true, whether you accept it or not. And I'm going to go to who will accept it. And then he's going to do it right in front of their noses. 
He witnesses right next door, and he, and he, and he close at hand. This means that Paul's witness is ongoing to the Jews. He has borne witness to the truth, and now he's going to bear fruit with the truth right in the face of the unbelievers. And the result is something of a sucker punch to the opposition. Verse 8. So the Jews reject, reject Christ. The next thing that happens... Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing and believed and were baptized. So, Paul says, I'm done with you, and their leader goes with him. God is working here. Crispus converted, and, and that was a witness of the gospel to the to the Gentiles. Many of the Corinthians believed and were baptized. And God vindicates his servants in battle as they take dominion over the earth. This doesn't mean that Paul was presumptuous. In fact, the next thing we see is that God gives him much needed assurance and encouragement. Paul's preaching the gospel. He's in a wicked city, and the Jews reject it, and he keeps going to different places. The Jews keep rejecting it. And by God's grace, he keeps planting churches, and they keep growing and doing well. But God gives him a vision by night. Verse 9. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silence. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. Verses 9 and 10. So here we see Paul's comfort in his calling. Paul has a vision. That's comfort. Paul is told in this vision, do not be afraid. That should give each of us great encouragement. That the Apostle Paul needed to hear those words. The Apostle Paul, the one who performs miracles and heals people and raises people from the dead. He needs to hear from God, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. But God says, don't fear and don't stop speaking because I am with you and no one can hurt you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't let fear stop you. Keep doing what you're doing. Witness the gospel. Speak. Open your mouth. Tell people about Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid. And this is what this is this is very fascinating. And he says, For I have many people in this city. One of the reasons God gives us assurance of faith is for the purpose of evangelism. In fact, it's one of the primary reasons God gives us per, the, the assurance of faith is so that we can be bold to speak and share the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to the many people that God has in his city. That must have been real comforting to Paul, especially when he, he opened his door and looked at the city. Here he is. He's in Corinth, a dirty, wicked city, a huge metropolis filled with sinners. He'd left Athens. He jumped out of the brains of culture into the brawn of it. And here he sees a mass of Roman commerce and multiculturalism, of idolatry, the greed of wealth and the licentious living that was everywhere in Corinth. And God says, I have many people in this city. 
The gospel is for sinners. It cleanses wickedness. It saves men from sin. It changes hearts. The gospel's not afraid of the biggest, wickedest city out there. Jesus conquers it. So Paul wasn't daunted by the size of the task at hand because God had given him comfort and calling. So all that was left for him to do was to get to work. Verse 11. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. All right, get to work. Go to it. Here's his calling. And his personal witness to the Corinthians is evidence evident in the books that he, he later writes to them. He, when he writes First and Second Corinthians, which he's going to be doing in a, in a, a couple of years from now, um, when he writes those books, he uses the witness that God gave him to them in his personal life because he can say things like, when I was there, I did this. Don't you remember? When I was there, I lived like this. Don't you remember? When I was there, you believed. Don't you remember? I was there. I witnessed it to, to you. You believed. Live according to the truth that I preached to you then. And so Paul uses this time for witnessing personally to the Corinthians. He also uses this time to write the books of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, to, to witness to the people that he's left behind him, that he, he loves and he yearns for, he prays for her constantly. Next, we have a confirmation from God of his calling on the ground. God's told him, I have work for you here. Get to it. I will not allow you to be hurt. Oh, yeah, God? Well, okay, prove it. Okay, God says. And God witnesses to Paul that he was safe here. Now he proves it. Verses 12 to 18. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So Paul still remained a good while. The Jews rise up against Paul, and God, God does it again. God saves him. He protects him. The, the, uh, the accusation that the Jews brought against Paul was really dangerous. Christianity was viewed as a as a as a uh, a faction of Judaism. And what the Jews were trying to get the Romans to see is that they, they, were, they were proclaiming that Christianity was not Jewish. It was a separate religion. And, and Christ, Judaism had legal protection in Rome. If the Jews could have convinced Gallio that Christianity was not Judaism, and it was, then it, that would have made it an illegal religion, then it would have in, in initiated a great persecution against the Christians. But that's not what God does. Gallio, and rightly and wisely so, says, that's not my concern. That's about you and your law, and that's not... Paul wouldn't say he's not a Jew. 
He said Christianity is the new Israel. So it becomes an it becomes a debate within within them. And so Gallio wisely says, "That's none of my concern." But that doesn't make Gallio necessarily a good guy because. The Greeks getting frustrated, because what happened was the Greeks were there too, and they were waiting for Gallio to judge, and they got annoyed that the Jews were taking up the time of, of, of the leader. So, so the Jews, Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, was trying to accuse Paul, are, are there, and the Greeks say, get out of the way. They beat Sosthenes in front of the judgment seat. Now, that was Gallio's job, to stop that. That was unrighteous and unjust. But again, it's God giving the sucker punch to his enemies. He says, you know, you reject me, Paul, leave, okay, put their blood on their own heads, and the ruler of the synagogue goes with him. And then, you want, you want to accuse Paul in front of the Roman governor? Fine. You're going to get beat in front of the judgment seat. So now the Christianity, the Christians are safe from the Jews. They've been publicly given the right to do what they're doing. And Paul works for a long time in Corinth. So, um... So now we come to some application, though. And basically what we're going to talk about here is calling. And calling is a multifaceted topic. It's, it's a really complex issue. It's rooted in the dominion mandate. Back in Genesis, God told mankind to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, to take dominion of the animals and the sea and the birds of the air and the earth. But because of the fall... Adam brought a curse on his work. His work became difficult and hard. It became a challenge to put food on the table. It became a challenge to take dominion over the earth. But Jesus redeemed Adam, and Jesus is redeeming mankind. And part of that is showing us what it means to take dominion. And because of that... When it comes to calling, we have to start with faith. When it comes to calling, we have to start with faith. We must believe first in Jesus. He's our salvation. He redeems us from our sin. He's the one who re reverses and eliminates the curse. In Jesus, we find that God is sovereign, God is good, and God has a plan for each of our lives, which is for our benefit. And it takes faith to believe this, especially in a fallen world. But that is the truth that God has revealed to us. That is the truth that we must proclaim as Christians. Yeah, out of faith, we proclaim that God is sovereign, God is good, and He loves us. And He loves you too, if you will repent and believe that Jesus is, is, is Lord of heaven and earth. In faith, we, we, we proclaim this and we, and we live according to this. And Paul is an example for us to follow in this. We see him believing. And we see him accomplishing Herculean tasks. The next thing when we must consider in, consider in our callings is that our callings are much more complex than we normally think of. Because usually when we think of calling, we consider our trade or our line of work primarily. That's, that's what we think of. If, 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 I, if I say randomly to a group of people and I say, let's talk about calling, we think about, well, what do you, what, what do, you do for a living? 
And, and we think of that as the primary aspect of calling, but when we think of it that way, we get it wrong. Our, what puts food on the table is not what comes first. We must start with the big picture in order to get it right on the smaller stuff. First, we are men called to worship and enjoy God forever. That's the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism, number one, question number one. What's the chief end of man? Worship God and enjoy Him forever. From there, it gets significantly more complex. But the answers to our questions are found in our connections to society or our relationships with our neighbors. First calling, love God. Second calling, love your neighbor. All of these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This means that we have many social callings in society. We have different relationships. You are a child. You may be somebody's spouse or somebody's parent. You may be a teacher or you may be a student. You might be an employee or you might be somebody's employer. You might be a subject or a king. Each of these are relationships, and in each of these relationships, they carry with them rights and responsibilities. They carry with them duties. And your relationships, where God places you, is ordained by God. And He graciously gives us His law, the Word, so that we can know what is right and what is true and what is good for us to do where we are at. So, for instance, today is Mother's Day. So let's talk about the calling of motherhood. Every year we commemorate this relationship, and it is good for us to do so. It's a high calling. And on this day we celebrate the calling of motherhood. We should praise and thank our mothers and the mothers of our children for the work they do in the carrying out of their calling. Children. Children, the scriptures command you to obey your mothers. And it promises you that you will be blessed if you honor them. That's one of the, one of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother, and your days will be long in the land which the Lord your God gives you. So take today to remember that, and purpose to do it the rest of the year. And then do it. Hear her words. Follow her commands as the Proverbs tell you to. They'll be, they'll be an ornament about your neck. They'll, 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 they'll make you lovely and beautiful and strong. Exercise wisdom so that she can rejoice in you. Husbands and fathers. Scripture commands husbands to cherish their wives. And to love them as Christ loves the church. So do that. Give her glory and praise. Build her up. Provide for her. Protect her. Show her grace and mercy. Adorn her and give her the security of unconditional, overwhelming, and life-giving love. Mothers... Your calling is high and your work is demanding. God commands you to some of the most important and yet mundane work on the planet. 
How many times will you wash that dish or clean up those crumbs or vacuum that carpet or change that diaper? You lost count, I'm sure, a long time ago. Yet you have charge over the most precious gifts God gives his little ones, his little children. Do your work with grace and peace and let your adornment be the enduring loveliness of a gentle and quiet spirit. And you must have faith if you're going to succeed in this. Because you will have to rest on God's grace in order to raise up a generation of men and women who will carry the torch of our faith into the future. Because they will be standing on your shoulders. So this is only one example of social callings. And we could do the same for fathers and for students and employers. Socially, we are called to particular places and times. But right relationships are dependent upon right belief. So it all falls back on faith, rightness with God. Now when it comes to determining our calling as regards to professions, we must take our social callings into account. We must first say, well, what is it? Who am I? Where am I? What is? What do I have to answer for to God? If I, you know, what, that's important. But once we get that, then we can start looking out at the world and saying, okay, God, what work do you have me for me to do to take dominion over this for your sake? Taking a trade or, 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 or honing a skill doesn't lock you into it permanently. Uh, otherwise, I'd still be on the dairy, and that would not be as fun. <laughs> so if you learn something, that's valuable. You can use it. You can use it. There's, there's correlation between different, different tasks and responsibilities. There's metaphors work. You, you know, God talks about ministry as shepherding. Uh, that works because it's like that. There's, there's similarities. But God calls you to a particular task at a particular time, and it takes wisdom to determine what that is. What is God's will for you? There's a lot of things that you have to, to, to wrestle with. Like, is it, first, is it legal? Is it lawful? Uh, but is it okay biblically? But then, is it even an option? Do you have an opportunity even to pursue it? Next, uh, does it fulfill your needs? Does it provide adequately for you and your household? Um, is there a demand for it? Will it provide for you? Do you even have an interest in it or desire for it? That, that comes into play with our callings. Do you have a skill or a capability? Are you capable of doing that work? Some people have limitations there. Does it, and then finally, does it fulfill your calling to God? Can you do this and enjoy God and worship Him in the, in the process? And all of these answers, they're, they're nuanced, you need wisdom, and you need to address all of these questions with prayer, and by revelation, and by the Holy Spirit. But whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord, because God is working in us, and in, as He works in us, He reveals to us what He has for us, and we grow into maturity in Him, and that will give us a faithful witness to the world. And this is, and, and now I'm going to leave us with, with, a, with a passage from 1 Thessalonians where Paul is talking to the Thessalonians about work. He says, But we urge you, brethren, 
that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. Faithfulness in calling is inextricably connected with faithfulness in witness. God is pleased when we work hard. He's pleased when we're diligent. And he blesses us when we embrace the callings that he gives to us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. Jesus has given us our work order, and on it it reads, Take over the world. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey His commandments. But this task does not come without a great promise, and this is the same promise that Paul received in his vision. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God gives us assurance of his presence so that we may be encouraged and strengthened to do his work faithfully, without doubt, proclaiming Jesus Christ and witnessing him before the world. And that is precisely what he does here at the communion table, giving us assurance of his presence by bread and wine in the sacrament. Partake of him. Rest in him and be filled by Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.